Thanks, Nate, for that generous introduction. It does remind me, though, of the man who was introduced at a luncheon as uh, having um, made $50,000 uh, growing wheat in Nebraska. And he got up and said he was grateful for the generous introduction, but he felt that honor required him to make a few corrections. <laughs> it wasn't wheat. It wasn't wasn't wheat in Nebraska, it was potatoes in Idaho. Um, it wasn't um, he, it was his brother. It wasn't $50,000, it was $500,000, and it wasn't made, it was lost. <laughs> now, um, don't worry, I didn't come expecting that everyone would be in a suit and tie. In the providence of God, I was able on the way up to attend the funeral of a long-serving elder in, one, in our church in Lake Stevens, a wonderful man. And uh, it was a very happy providence that uh, your invitation uh, eventually coincided with that opportunity. I want this evening to give you an anatomy of the doctrine of the covenant child with its history and its corresponding ethics or parental responsibilities. We only have time for an outline, but I think that'll be enough. Uh, you will find, I'm sure, in the course of your life as parents, uh, books to read uh, with insights uh, for parents. But the Bible characteristically presents its ethics in two ways. Uh, first, as the immediate and obvious implication of its theology. The indicative uh, not only leads to the imperative, but the imperative takes the particular form it does because of the indicative, because of what God has done, because what God has promised. Um, the second uh, way the Bible teaches us its ethics is just general commandments with a little bit of case law or a little bit of illustration to get us started in thinking about how we would keep those commandments in the push and pull of ordinary life. You're never going to find a chapter in the Bible entitled the six rules of effective parenting or 10 habits of successful parents. Faith, Obedience to God's law, love for God and others are the tools. Tools in parenting as they are in every other dimension of the Christian life. Life cannot be reduced to procedures. It must be lived out of commitments and commitments that are shaped by what we believe God has taught us and told us in his word. I want to begin with the history of the doctrine because that history will, I think, illuminate the doctrine in some significant ways. Even in the Reformed Church, the Reformed tradition, we don't believe the same thing about covenant children and about their salvation and about the particular relationship they have to God when they come into the world. Um, and for that reason, we don't always raise our children in the same way in the Reformed Church, even in the Presbyterian Church. Though I will have cause to mention that the biblical doctrine and the biblical ethics drawn from it are so instinctual that often and in many different ways the biblical 
doctrine surfaces in practice even when it is denied in confession. It oversimplifies the situation to say that the magisterial reformation, the first generation of the reformation, the reformers, Luther and Calvin, uh, Bootser, Knox, and so on, that they had a single a mind about the covenant child. Um, but I do think it's true to say that the doctrine of the magisterial reformation, especially as it was given expression by John Calvin, is a silver thread that weaves itself through the centuries uh, ever since, sometimes more clearly seen and sometimes less, sometimes more deeply appreciated and sometimes less. Let me reduce that doctrine very quickly to just a few affirmations. The promise of the covenant that God would be our God and the God of our children is a promise of salvation, nothing less. It's not a pro promise of a privileged upbringing or something else. It is the promise of eternal life. I will be a God to you and to your children is the shortest way the Bible has to say everything we mean by salvation. What is the situation of the unbeliever? Uh, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that that person is without God. And what is the situation in heaven? We read in Revelation 21 that that's the place where God is our God and we are his people. Second, the children of believers are Christians. That is perhaps the key principle since it carries with us with it such immense implications for the raising of our children. They are Christians to be discipled, not unbelievers to be evangelized. We'll get to that uh, in the third uh, presentation. The parental calling is therefore to nourish faith in our children so that they may grow up into the maturity of that faith. And then finally, infants, even infants in the womb, are capable of faith. They can be, and often are, believers. Calvin's doctrine of infant faith, in which he holds that faith can be in the heart as a seed, is, um, is actually one of the theological constructions for which he is regarded as a genius of um, biblical interpretation. But Calvin's doctrine, as a matter of fact, was never developed as thoroughly, never integrated into our theological system as completely as it might have been and should have been. And for that reason, it remained as something of a stepchild in the Reformed systematic theology. And ordinarily in that theology was confined, confined to the argumentation for infant baptism. It has never been, even up to our own day. I know of no systematic theology written of, from the Reformed viewpoint in which the doctrine of the covenant child is thoroughly expressed throughout the soteriology, throughout the doctrine of salvation. Abraham Kuyper's complaint was that when we are thinking about justification and when we are writing about justification, almost invariably we are writing and thinking as if everyone becomes a Christian through an experience of adolescent or young adult conversion. Um, it can't be to the credit of our systemat systematic theologians that they leave unmentioned in most cases 
the way in which most people become Christians and the way in which um, most people receive the forgiveness of their sins. The means of grace in the typical presentation that you find in Reformed systematic theology also omit uh, the nurture of children in the home as one of the principal ways in which God's salvation is mediated to the elect. However, more than simply a failure to persevere in the development of the doctrine and make sure that it was thoroughly integrated into the system, the doctrines of Calvin regarding the covenant child, infant baptism, infant faith, were actually eclipsed and largely ignored in many sections of the Reformed tradition and for long periods of time. The story of, that, of how that happened was first told by Louis Bevins Schenck, S-C-H-E-N-C-K, uh, in a fine study that originated as a doctoral dissertation at Yale University in the very early years of the 1940s. His book, published in the 40s by Yale University Press, was entitled The Presbyterian Doctrine of Children in the Covenant. I say it was ironic that uh, Schenck uh, should have defended Calvin's doctrine of the Christian child, since as a Southern Presbyterian, he was heir to a tradition that had largely abandoned uh, Calvin's doctrine. Indeed, the Southern men, James Henley Thornwell, Robert Dabney, and others, very conspicuously did not think about the children of the church in the same way that Calvin had taught us uh, to think. And certainly, they didn't think about the covenant child in the same way that the northern men, more closely allied to the Calvinistic tradition, uh, had done. Charles Hodge, W.G.T. Shedd, Henry Smith, and so on. But Schenck was highly critical of his own Southern Presbyterian tradition. And um, he argued that that tradition in which covenant children were regarded as only quasi children, or quasi-Christians, Christians to be, as it were, um, he argued that that was not Reformed theology at all. It's uh, damning of our theological work uh, in the Reformed Church that Schenck's book, after all these years, more, is still uh, not only the best, it's virtually the only piece of historical theology that has ever been written devoted to this particular subject. Most of our PCA men have never read uh, Schenck and are largely unaware of the history of the doctrine and the controversies that surround it. And one of the reasons for this is that until very recently, and even to this point, to a great degree, these doctrines never became the subject of controversy uh, in the church in the way in which they became controversial in other Reformed communions. I've received most of my help in developing my thinking on this subject from Dutch sources because these doctrines became a matter of intense controversy in the Dutch Reformed world in a way they never did in the American Reformed church. To the men of the secession of 1843, the first secession from the Hervormde Kerk in, in uh, the Nederland, the so-called A brothers, um, and the men of the Doliansi, the 
division led by Abraham Kuyper in the 1870s, um, they did not think uh, in the same way about the covenant child and what God meant when he said that they were holy or what God meant when he said that he would be our God and the God of our children. Um, Klaus Skilda in the middle of the 20th century and the Freichemach men uh, didn't think the same way about uh, the Christian child as did uh, the followers of uh, Kuiper uh, in the, in the uh, GKN, the Hreifmerde Kerken Nederland. Um, as a result, the Dutch Reformed men had to work this whole doctrine out because the churches were being roiled by these issues and divided by these issues. If you can believe it, it was this doctrine regarding the covenant child over which the Dutch Reformed Church in the Netherlands split while under the thumb of the Nazi government uh, during the Second World War. You would have thought wise men would have been able to figure out that this was not the time to go to the mat uh, regarding presumptive regeneration, but they managed to do it and, um, and actually depose Klaus Skilda, who could not be there to defend himself because he was in hiding from uh, the Nazi government uh, during the time. Uh, after the war, there was an awful lot of um, embarrassed um, comment about that whole ep episode and um, a lot of apologies that were uh, made, but the damage uh, had been done. According to Schenck, the special place, the special position of the covenant child was overwhelmed in the Reformed tradition uh, and later the American Presbyterian world uh, by the effects of the Great Awakening and the subsequent revivals. Those movements uh, are marked um, by the extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful experiences of conversion that so many people had in those times. And that marked the religious consciousness of a great many Christian people, including a reformed uh, people. So much so that as some of the reformed Calvinistic revival figures said, if you do not know when you became a Christian, and if you don't know how you became a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. To say such a thing, of course, is to call into question, if not to deny altogether, the spiritual experience of vast multitudes of God's people through the ages who, like David, trusted in their Lord from, the, from their mother's breast and had no experience of stepping out of darkness into light. Uh, becoming a Christian through an experience of conversion. But for those shaped by the revivals, a conversion experience became the sine qua non of Christian assurance. It was the way you knew you actually belonged uh, to the Lord. You could remember how it happened in your particular case. Charles Hodge and others protested against this development in the middle of the 19th century, but their protests were no match for a spiritual culture that had been so profoundly shaped by the experiences of the awakening and the revivals that followed. Um, in a letter to Herman Bovink, the great Dutch theologian, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, uh, admitted that though 
uh, American Presbyterians still practiced infant baptism. It was rather for most all of them actually, um, if truth be told, infant dedication. Which is to say they did not regard their children really as Christians, but as those they hoped would become Christians at some point. Um, I can certainly attest to the power of a spiritual culture to shape theological understanding and conviction. I think we all know something of this, even if we've never um, articulated the issues to ourselves. But take conversion in particular. The Bible illustrates conversion, of course, especially in the New Testament, and notably that of the Apostle Paul. You may not be aware of the fact that actually more space in the New Testament is devoted to the narration of the conversion of the Apostle Paul than is devoted to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, four times the story is told. Uh, obviously, it is a paradigmatic uh, event in uh, New Testament teaching. Nevertheless, the Bible never gives us a paradigm of conversion. It never explains to us what a conversion is going to be, how it's going to be experienced, uh, what will happen in someone's life, and how uh, that will happen. When John wrote his first letter to teach us how to know that we are Christians, notably absent in the evidences, is an experience of conversion. He never says anything about, uh, well, remember how it was when you became a Christian. Remember what happened to you. Remember what you thought and how you felt. He says nothing about that. His tests of life or commitment to the truth, as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, a life of obedience to God's commandments and love of the brethren. Um, but in revival-shaped spiritual cultures, the experience of conversion has very often become the, ir, uh, the ineradicable mark of spiritual life. You know, you're, uh, you know you're a Christian because you have had a conversion. Interestingly, in a study of two seminary populations in Great Britain done some years ago, one a nonconformist seminary, Reed Baptist, and the other an Anglican seminary, um, the, the students, these are all Bible-believing, serious-minded Christian men who want to go into the Christian ministry and uh, be ministers of the gospel. In the Baptist seminary, 97% of the students had had a conversion experience. In the Anglican seminary, less than half had had one. The point is, if your spiritual culture requires you to have a conversion experience, you're far more likely to have one. If your spiritual culture does not require it, uh, it's much more likely that you will not have one. Not that we don't know people who were converted and had powerful conversion experiences, um, only that that is not necessarily the case for every believer. I don't know how many times through the years I've sat in on membership interviews in which people new to the church were being interviewed for church membership by the elders. And one of the questions we always ask is, tell us about how you uh, became a Christian, something of your story as a follower of Jesus Christ. And again and again and again, uh, young adults who were raised 
in the Presbyterian tradition, who were raised in Presbyterian churches, in Presbyterian homes, will say something like this. When I was seven, my mother asked me if I'd ever asked Jesus into my heart. And so that night we knelt by my bed and I asked Jesus into my heart. Or they'll say I was at camp one summer and a counselor asked me if I'd ever really made a personal commitment to Christ. And so he and I together on our knees uh, prayed and I prayed that I, that I would be a Christian, follow the Lord. And uh, then I ask the one who's being interviewed, so what you're saying is, up until that night when you knelt by your bed with your mom, you were a rebel against God. You were an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you came up from your knees, you were a new creature in Christ with a completely new understanding of your life, your calling, your meaning. And invariably they say, well, no, I don't, I don't mean that. <laughs> what they mean, of course, is that they were expected to have a conversion. And so they had one. One was created for them so that they would be able to say, I became a Christian at such and such a time in such and such a way. Um, Schenck's explanation of the, the way in which um, Calvin's doctrine of the Christian child was, was largely eclipsed and replaced by a conversionist paradigm, even in the Christian home, is I think largely correct, but I don't think he fully appreciates the failure, even in the early era, to not only elaborate the doctrine and to connect it to the other doctrines of uh, our soteriology, but also I think he overstates the enthusiasm that other, other generations of Reformed people, particularly the English Puritans, had for this doctrine. He believes that they were basically teaching Calvin's doctrine, and I think you can find Calvin's doctrine in the English Puritans, in Richard Baxter and elsewhere, but this was a movement of spiritual reform. They were highly skeptical of what they took to be the nominal Christianity so commonplace in English parishes at the time. They spent much more time and energy elaborating the necessity of a genuine conversion than they did talking about the nurture of infant faith in covenant children. Um, in fact, there's a lot more development of the doctrine of infant faith in Lutheran dogmatics in the several generations following the Reformation than there can be found in Reformed dogmatics. Because of their emphasis on justification by faith, they needed a way for children dying in infancy to be saved. And uh, the way they uh, saw uh, to that uh, solution was through the doctrine of infant faith. The Second Reformation, the Dutch Natura Reformatie, and similar movements of spiritual renewal typically concentrate on the convert on the adult who needs to take seriously the summons of Christ, usually among people who are actually in the church, but only nominally so, rather than uh, the nurture of faith in a Christian home. 
Presbyterians still baptized their infant children, but many of them raised their children as if they were not yet Christians. As Schenck put it, Presbyterians were practicing infant baptism in an unnatural manner. A good example is John Gerstner, a man I really admire. I've um, had opportunities to, to, before his death to hear him uh, lecture and to preach. Um, always uh, fascinating to listen to, partly because of his learning and partly because of his dry wit, um, and also his gravelly voice, if you've ever listened to John Gerstner. This is uh, the man who was the mentor of R.C. Sproul. You can chalk up uh, Ligonier and its wide-ranging ministry to um, John Gerstner, who was Sproul's teacher at seminary in Pittsburgh. Um, Gerstner held, as a Presbyterian, Pado-Baptist, Gerstner held that you should not teach your children the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer begins with the words, Our Father. And how can you teach your children to say, Our Father, if you don't know that your child is in fact a child of God. Um, that seems extraordinary to me, but it's typical of Gerstner. He was consistent in his theological elaboration, even when it took him to places we wish uh, he hadn't gone. Um, my own father had a much clearer sense of the unique place of the Christian child, I think in some part because uh, he had for some time fallen under the spell of American fundamentalist, baptistic, conversionist, uh, spiritual culture. How much the doctrine was in eclipse, I had the occasion of discovering for myself. The fact that we had a doctrine of the Christian child de jure, but a very different practice de facto, led to my interest in researching, working this out for myself, and then writing and publishing an article on the theology of the salvation of the Christian child back in the early 1990s. It was somewhat to my surprise, I actually learned this later, the first foray into that subject by a conservative American Presbyterian for at least a generation, and maybe two. The article, though it represented boilerplate Reformed theology, as you would find especially in Calvin, uh, generated a great deal of response. More indeed than I had anticipated. In fact, it so concerned the editorial committee of Presbyterian, Covenant Theological Seminary's review, the journal in which the article was published, that they asked me if I would be willing for the editor to accompany the article with certain questions that the editorial committee had. So far as I know, this is still the only time an article published in that journal has been treated in that way. But it's a perfect illustration of how far American Presbyterian thinking had moved from the early Reformed convictions regarding covenant children and the salvation of our children. On the other hand, Gerard van Groningen, who was at that time a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, 
but a product of the Dutch Reformed tradition, wrote a blistering letter to the editor of Presbyterion, complaining that the questions attached by the editor or editorial committee to the article was proof positive that some of the, pres some of the professors at the seminary, perhaps unwittingly, were more Baptist than they were Presbyterian. Many others wrote to commend the article for helping them understand what they had somewhat instinctively felt but never had really understood and could not themselves articulate. Doug Wilson of Moscow, Idaho told me that the article had been instrumental in his abandoning his Baptistic convictions and becoming a Pado-Baptist. I don't say that to suggest that the article was any um, sterling piece of original research, just that it demonstrated how little our own Presbyterian people actually understood the doctrine of the Christian child by this time and how far they had moved from the original position mapped out by Calvin and the magisterial reformers. I'd say that still today, most of our people would be hard pressed to explain what it is we believe about the covenant child or the way of his or her salvation, why infant baptism must be practiced in our churches, or precisely how this doctrine rests on the testimony of Holy Scripture itself. That would certainly be the case in our southeastern churches, influenced as they have been so much more strongly by a tradition that actually positively rejected uh, Calvin's doctrine. Um, it's even different in some, some very significant uh, measure from the doctrine and the teaching of the Westminster Standards. The Westminster Divines didn't necessarily articulate this doctrine very substantially or effectively or helpfully in the Confession and Catechisms, but they were bold to say in their directory of worship that baptism makes our children Christians. Still, I'm encouraged that there is a lot more thinking along these lines and about this subject now than there was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Some of this is no doubt due to the reformation of worship uh, in our churches. Liturgical reformation often provokes uh, theological reflection that no one anticipated when they began making changes to their worship service. And a more frequent Lord's Supper, in particular, has provoked more and more thinking about our children's place in the church, what they're doing in our worship services, whether they belong there and how they belong there. And, of course, so has the disintegration of the family in our modern Western culture. So I'll leave this um, very superficial historical review at this point but I'll close with this reminder. It's the fate of the church to reach convictions with confidence and then over time to lose them, either by indifference, a failure to teach and preach them, or by, as in this case, allowing them to be overwhelmed and replaced as the result of powerful currents in the culture and the culture of the church. This has happened to virtually every single piece of biblical teaching at one time or another, so it shouldn't surprise us that we will have to recover certain biblical teaching 
every generation of God's people will have to recover some biblical teaching in their own time. The task of recovering it, of course, is complicated by the length of time in which no attention has been paid uh, to the doctrine or by the strength in which counter-teaching has been given uh, to the church and taught uh, to the church. But we live in a time, it seems to me, when this very important doctrine has to be recovered in the church. I'll explain why in more detail in the next lecture, but um, let me just finish with this. It is an obvious fact of biblical demography that far and away the largest number of Christians who have ever lived in the world have been the product of believing homes. So if we're losing our touch, if we're losing touch with our understanding of that fact and the reason for that fact, we're losing touch with something of immeasurable importance to the life and health of the church. We are living, you and I, in a day when there are fewer Christians in the United States of America every single year than there were the year before. The one thing we absolutely cannot afford at this point in time is to lose our children. We can continue to hold, we at least can continue to hold um, our numbers if we are saving uh, our children. Uh, we can't ever be successful in evangelism if what we are effectively saying to the world is our kids who have grown up under this doctrine find it uninteresting and are much more enamored of the world. And so now we have all these empty seats in our church and we need you unbelievers to come in and fill them. That's not a message that resonates with people. They want to see that message being embraced by those who, who um, claim to believe it and passing it on to the next generation. Okay, comments and questions on this particular theme? Or so far as we've gone, in any case. What language would you use for, you know, our, our church, as, you know, we're coming up on 10 years, the younger, mm -hmm. you know, early on, all the kids were kind of seven and under, most of them, and now we're having teens, and, um, yeah, you know, it seems like it's a, even though, even if we're not saying they're becoming Christians in that stage of adolescence, that it is maybe an important part of their uh, maturation to, to have some, you know, embracing of, you know, it's not just because my parents bring me to church, but I, I really, you know, I, uh, I believe this and and, you know, we, we admit kids pretty young to the table. We don't use the table as that kind of time to... So I'm curious how, how you've thought through, and maybe this is something later, but uh, if you have language for what maybe they're calling, it, you know, a conversion, which maybe is an important spiritual experience that they had, you know, does yeah. that make sense? I think, um, I think there have been, through the ages, a variety of approaches taken. You have confirmation 
in some churches, in our particular tradition, you have joining the church. Um, in, depending upon the tradition, it can be 14 years of age. I was just in a Dutch Reformed uh, conference a few weeks ago. In some of those churches, it's not till 19 or 20 that uh, a Christian child now of that age takes the Lord's Supper for the first time. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Obviously, the Christian life, the way our catechism puts it, sanctification is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. And the, I don't think they intended to, make, to give you this impression, but the idea is that the Christian life is something like this, a gradual, a gradual uh, ascent to uh, ever greater measures of holiness. We all know that's not the experience of God's people. It's crises um, separated often by long periods of stasis in which it's really hard to tell that um, anything dramatic has changed in our relationship with Christ or our serving of him. Um, and I think that's to be expected. I mean, Christ uh, Christian children, as I will say later, are not a separate class of believers. Everything that the Bible says about their experience or that a, is, says about a Christian's experience is going to apply to them too. They're going to have ups and downs. They're going to have crises. They're going to have periods of stasis and so on. I don't have a problem with um, more formal um, efforts to as it were, identify them as Christians in the church. I have two cautions, though. The first is, you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. That, that has always troubled me to some degree. And the second, the second is that the last thing you want to do is create an experience. And the last thing you want to do is to seek to give young Christians an experience of one kind or another. Um, the danger of that, of course, is they will perceive in time that nothing was really different after than it was before. And it can be a cause of creating real doubt in a young believer's mind as to whether or not I've, I've uh, been sold a bill of goods and I've been told that these things are meaningful when in fact they don't seem they don't seem to be. I've got a friend at church who's a Baptist um, guy, um, really sincere believer, loves the word, um, brings his kids to Trinity School here, which is our church. And you know, we kind of um, I try to discuss with him this concept of infant baptism. And the way I go about it is, you know, I'll tell him about Testament, circumcision of the Mark of the Covenant. You did that to kids when they were eight days old, I think. Um, and, and then, you know, I would maybe say, look, look in Acts, it talks about the promises for you and your children. And um, Jesus says, let little children come to me. That's the best I can do. What, what he would come back with is, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where children were baptized. And, um, you know, it does seem like the Bible speaks in terms of, you know, you and your household will get baptized, but it doesn't specifically mention kids. And that, I mean, without getting into long, yeah. you know, doctrines of counter, that's the best that I've been able to do. And it's not per 
persuading him, and I think he's a true believer who loves God. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, obviously, there have been Baptists for a long time, and that, um, that way of thinking is, is persuasive to a lot of people, and more so in Western culture with its democratic um, um, political impulse. But I think you've put your finger on an important problem. We typically argue for infant baptism by considering the rite itself. Circumcision in the Old Testament becomes baptism in the New, and it was given to infants in the Old Testament. It should be given to infants in the New. Far more significant to me, and this is what I attempted to, um, attempted to argue in the, in the uh, article, was the underlayment. Why was circumcision given to children in the ancient epoch? Why should, infant, should baptism be given to infants today? And um, I begin by, ordinarily in a conversation like this, I begin by telling them, I don't think, in fact, I'm almost sure that you and your wife did not bring children into the world thinking you were populating hell. Whether you had a reason for that confidence or not, whether when you're standing on your feet in theological debate, you can demonstrate the biblical nature of that conviction or not, you did not think you were populating hell when you brought your children into the world. In fact, look, there are, um, what, closing in on 8 billion people in the world today. Let's, let's, make a, let's make a very generous number and say that a quarter of them, 2 billion, are living Christians have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. They are in Christ. That's one in four. Would you have children? Would we have children? If we thought we had a 25% chance that our children would be in heaven with us at the end of the day. Frankly, if I thought I had a one in four shot at seeing my kids in heaven, I think I could do without parenthood. The risk is simply too great. But Christian parents do not think that way. They never think that way. They know that God, because he is committed to us, is committed to our children. I'm going to elaborate that point in the next, in the next presentation. But this is, the, this is the issue. The issue isn't the right. The issue is the theology of the covenant child. The issue is what the Bible says about our children. I won't say anything more about that because I'm going to I'm going to say that um, in the next in the next presentation. So you, you say one of the elements of Calvin's teaching on this is that children of believers are Christians. Yes. So then, would he hold that children, even infants, as soon as they could eat, should take the Lord's supper? No, he didn't. But it's very interesting. He he gives himself away when he says that. Um, it would be inappropriate for children in early, early infancy. So we don't really know um, what Calvin would say about the argument that's being mounted in our time. 
for pedo-communion. There were two significant voices arguing for pedo-communion at the time of, of Calvin. One was a Greek Orthodox thinker who had studied at Tübingen, or Wittenberg, maybe it was Wittenberg, and uh, was arguing that the Greek Orthodox custom was in fact more biblical. And the other was a theologian by the name of Musculus, who was somewhat of a mediating figure between the Reformed and the Lutheran Reformation. And he argued as well, in a very straightforward way, that weaned covenant children should be taking the Lord's Supper, which seems to be the biblical pattern, Exodus 12 and, and so on. Um, but here, here's the simple reality. You can only think through so many things in a single lifetime. And um, they, were, they were concentrating on other things at the time. And no one was clamoring for the children to be reintroduced. Everybody knew that um, pedo-communion had been the practice of the church up through the 12th century. They lost the bread and the wine when everybody else did. Um, and communion became communion in, a, in one kind. You got the bread only, not the, not the uh, wine. Um, because of these superstitious ideas about the blood having, or the wine actually having become the body of Christ and so on. Um, and nobody was, nobody was arguing that we fix that mistake at the time. So I, I'd be very, I mean, what's one of the things I'm going to be interested to talk to him about uh, when I finally have the opportunity. What do you think about that argument? And uh, where, where would you have said you might have fallen if that argument had been powerfully made in your own, in your own day? Yeah. What's your guess? Well, I think that, I think that, uh, that adverb is very revealing. Early infancy. I'd say that. Early infancy, um, basically in, in Exodus 12, you're supposed to fix as much food as you have mouths to feed. That's the Passover rule. Fix as much food as you have mouths to feed. Um, but you're not giving lamb to a, a three-month-old baby. So, yeah. <laughs> 